Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Jacobean era helped shape the exploration and colonization of the North American continent. We enter a new century alongside a new English monarch with a deep dive into a fascinating epoch that witnessed the unification of England and Scotland under one ruler, resulting in an important shift of order for both nations, shaping their existence to the present day. Another development of crucial significance during this period was the establishment of the first British colonies on the North American continent at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, in Newfoundland in 1610, and at Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts in 1620, which laid the foundation for future British settlement and the eventual formation of both Canada and the United States of America. Along the way, we share time with fascinating Jacobean characters and travel alongside great New World transatlantic explorers, adventurers, and colonizers who crossed the pond, while learning of important pivotal events that influenced the settlement and subsequent development of the Western Hemisphere between 1603 and 1625. And now, let's delve into the life and times of the British monarch that gave his name to the Jacobean era, King James I. We continue our story with more excerpts from the audiobook Monarchy from the Middle Ages to Modernity by David Starkey, available when using the link in this episode's show notes. James VI of Scotland was proclaimed King of England in 1603, and his first Parliament proclaimed that he was, by inherent birthright and undoubted and lawful succession, the successor to the imperial crown of England and Scotland. James's lasting legacy was to be the union of the crowns of England and Scotland, and he set out his case in a speech from the throne at the opening of his first English Parliament in March 1604. His succession had united the kingdoms of England and Scotland, ending the ancient divisions of the island of Britain. It was, said James, impossible to rule two countries, the one great, the other a less. It would be easier for one head to govern two bodies, or one man to be husband of two wives. Moreover, the king claimed, these divisions were largely in the mind. Were not England and Scotland already united by a common language, the Protestant religion and similar customs and manners? Was not the border practically indistinguishable on the ground? It was as though God had always intended the union to happen. To resist union, therefore, James concluded, was not simply impolitic but impious. It was to put asunder kingdoms that God himself had joined together. But the English Parliament, impolitically and impiously, decided to look the gift horse of union in the mouth. Part of their decision was governed by straightforward anti-Scottish xenophobia, but more fundamental causes were involved as well. These centred on James's apparently innocuous wish to rename the Anglo-Scottish kingdom Britain. A new name meant a new kingdom. It would, one MP said, be like a freshly conquered territory in the new world. 
there will be no laws and no customs, and James, by his own rules in the true law of free monarchies, would be free to set himself up as an absolute, supranational emperor of Great Britain. The English Parliament, in contrast, would be left as a mere provincial assembly. It was not an enticing prospect for MPs who saw themselves as the great council of the realm. James's reaction to their opposition was to try to enact the union symbolically, using his own powers under the royal prerogative. By proclamation, he assumed the title of King of Great Britain. He restyled the royal coat of arms with the Lion of England balanced by the Unicorn of Scotland, and he insisted on a British flag known as the Jack after the Latin form of the name James, again by proclamation. But not content with symbols, James also practised a kind of union by stealth. The English political elite had prevented him from establishing an evenly balanced Anglo-Scots council, but a king could do what he liked with his own court. So, in revenge, James filled his bedchamber, the inner ring of his court, almost exclusively with Scots. It was a pleasure, since James took a more than fatherly interest in braw Scots lads with well-turned legs and firm buttocks. But it also suited him politically, since it compelled proud Englishmen to sue for patronage to his Scots favourites, and to bribe them as well. But James's policy of union by stealth had a fatal flaw. He had inherited a substantial debt from Elizabeth. He had a large family to maintain, but he wanted to continue pouring money and, to his eyes, his newfound wealth on his favourites and his pleasures. For all of this, the crown's so-called ordinary income from land and custom duties was hopelessly inadequate. There was no choice but to ask Parliament to vote money. The English Parliament, however, saw no reason why taxpayers' money, their money, should end up in the pockets of Scots' favourites, and they said so rather crudely. How, asked one MP, could the system of the Treasury ever be filled up if money continued to flow thence by private cocks? Cocks meant taps and, uh, well, what it means now. So James's project for British Union remained an unfulfilled dream, while his relations with Parliament, which he thought he could master, turned into disaster. The king was forced to fall back on his scriptural argument about the divine right of kings. And, mundanely enough, the issue was tax, blocked by Parliament in its pursuit of an adequate income. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening, who should call right now? Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
James used his prerogative to levy money from indirect taxation. Many saw this as unconstitutional, but, backed by the opinion of judges, James got his own way. But it meant a head-on collision with Parliament. If ever an English king managed to raise enough money by indirect means without consent, MPs reasoned, he would be able to dispense with Parliaments altogether and reign as a tyrant. Addressing Parliament in 1610, James went far beyond all his predecessors in arguing for his rights as king. Although he would respect Parliament, he said, MPs had no right to question his prerogative of taxing without consent. It may have been a constitutional or legal matter, but James went one step further. The state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon earth, he told Parliament. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself they are called gods. James had, after all, been brought up a scholar, and this was the intellectual justification for what he was doing. He would not turn the monarchy into quite the absolutist institution, which many were coming to fear would be the ultimate outcome of the Stuart succession. But that was because of his moderation, and not because of any limitation on his quasi-divine majesty. But James's words fell on deaf or deliberately uncomprehending ears, and, faced by widespread obstruction, by the time of his death in 1625, he had retreated into a sort of internal exile, abandoning the task of government and secluding himself with his favourites and horses at Newmarket. Nevertheless, he had managed by a mixture of tact, duplicity and masterful inaction to stick to the middle ground and hold together the warring extremes of the Church of England on the one hand and the differing religious policies of England and Scotland on the other. The result was a smooth succession on both sides of the border of James's son Charles to the glittering inheritance of the imperial crown of Great Britain. Within a decade and a half, Charles, by his intransigence and his ineptitude, had thrown it all away. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. Did you know that word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast? It helps us expand our audience by getting us more notice and keeps us going and growing. So please, folks, spread the word to family and friends. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. 
buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.